uh, some people become friends because they uh, have a mutual need of each other. Some people become friends because they've gone through a fire together. Some people become friends uh, because they begin to notice that the other person is headed for the same goal, just from a different direction. I think that's how Rabbi Dowerman and I became friends. My struggle for what the unity of Jews and Gentile Christians was supposed to be, not what it had become, drawing me to a more Judeo-Christian faith, his pathway uh, of looking at Messianic Judaism and trying to understand the relationship of Jews and Gentiles in that context, uh, really began to uh, cause us to say things, agree with each other when everyone else in the room didn't agree. Uh, and even in times when we thought we were saying different things, when we talked, it was clear that we were on the same path. So that began a uh, friendship and an acquaintance that also gave me the privilege of being the outside reader on his dissertation, which when I said I would do it, I thought it would be uh, uh, short and sweet. You should see the size of his dissertation. <laughs> it's a tome, uh, but it's fascinating material. I have wanted you to, uh, you've had a number of people from the Messianic movement um, uh, teach you here. I have wanted to have Rabbi Dowerman come uh, because I want you to be exposed to his musical abilities, but more than that, I want you to be exposed to his heart because it is a Jewish heart that connects to what I believe is the Jewish heart and my Gentile heart aligned with Yeshua beats in sync with that and and so it's important that you hear from really our elder brothers in this faith and understand together we have to find our place and our relationship. So uh, I'm not going to say any more because he didn't pay me. So uh, uh, <laughs> I want to introduce to you and I hope you'll listen prayerfully to Rabbi Stewart, Dr. Rabbi Stewart. Thirty-seven congregations. Thirty-seven congregations, uh, the leaders of those thirty-seven congregations met uh, mid-year in the middle of this country, uh, representing those thirty-seven congregations of the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. It was the mid-year leadership meeting. And I stood up at that meeting and I said something to these folks that I'm repeating to you now. I said, you know, we have 37 congregations represented here. And out of these 37 congregations, you haven't seen 37 Jewish people come to faith in Jesus in the last five years. Nobody contradicted me. In fact, I could have said the last 10 years, and nobody would have contradicted me. One of the things that stirs my heart and causes it to beat in sync with the heart of your 
good pastor, is that I recognize the Messianic Jewish movement is greatly failing the Great Commission. Actually, it's something I call the Greater Commission because Paul talks in Romans 11 of two fullnesses, the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of Israel. And they're both coordinate in Jesus Christ, but uh, they don't look exactly the same. But be that as it may, what is supposed to be happening among the Jewish people through the Messianic Jewish movement, I'm here to tell you what's not happening. We're supposed to be a sign, a demonstration, and a catalyst of God's consummating purposes for the Jewish people. It's not happening. But it's not happening in the church either. I read a statistic this past week that chilled my blood and probably will chill yours. What percentage of church growth in America is transfer growth? In other words, of the people who join evangelical churches in America, what percentage of them are simply people who are transferring from another church? You'll never guess. 96%. I don't like to be the bearer of bad tidings. I'm here to preach good news. But before you're going to hear the good news, and I have great news for you today, great news, you've got to hear the bad news. The bad news is that the, uh, the evangelical church in America is failing. It's not so true elsewhere in the world. In some places, it's growing like, not like a weed, it's growing like a field of weeds. It's unbelievable. But in America, we are failing. And um, one way to keep yourself from knowing you fail is just not to think about the goal. But uh, one thing is for sure, the early church was not ingrown. Neither was it sterile. It was not ingrown and it was not ungrown. Do you agree? All right. Instead, it continually touched and changed the world. The growth rate of the early church, it, computing that, depends upon what you begin with as your initial figures. But let's, uh, one scholar starts by conservatively saying that in the year 40, roughly seven years after the crucifixion, there were, let's say there were a thousand Christians in the world. That is a gross understatement, but let's leave it there. A thousand. If there were a thousand in, in the year 40, and assuming a slightly positive rate of reproductive growth, an increase of 5% of the population of those Christians per decade through birth uh, into those Christian families. And let's say a rapid rate of conversion growth. Let's say 35% growth for every 10 years amongst those Christians. If we use those figures, then by the year 300 A.D., there were 20 million believers in Jesus in the world. And by 350 A.D., as many as 33 million. Now, the question that comes to your mind and comes to my mind is why the discrepancy between these figures, between them and us, Should we just learn to be comfortable with the way things are now? Is this why Jesus came? I was speaking in a Messianic congregation about a year ago, and I made a statement in a small 
conversa- side conversation during a break, I said, you know, there are some people who think the Messianic Jewish movement exists to teach Gentiles Judaism light. And one of the women that said, yes, that's why we exist. I'm glad for the shaking of your head. <sighs> now, it's not simply that I don't believe in that goal. It's that, what about God's goal? I firmly believe and I teach that God raised up the Messianic Jewish movement that we might be a sign, a demonstration, and a catalyst of his consummating purposes for Israel. Not, with all due respect, that we exist to teach Judaism light to Gentiles who have gotten disenchanted for whatever reason with the institutional church. That's not why we exist. But to my shock, there are some people who think that. I'm reminded of what the Messiah told us in Luke chapter 12 when he said this, I have come to cast fire upon the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Are you hungry for that kind of fire? Are you ashamed and dismayed the way I am of the way things are? And I'm not here to leave you in your shame, I promise. But are you ashamed and dismayed? Are you desperate? I hope so. Eugene Pearson, uh, Peterson, in his paraphrase of, of the New Testament, takes that passage of Jesus and he says this about it. He says, I've come to start a fire on, the, on this earth. How I wish it were blazing right now. I've come to change everything, turn everything right side up. How I long for it to be finished. Do you think I came to smooth things over and make things nice? Not so. I've come to disrupt and confront. End quote. Are you ready to be disrupted and confronted? Am I ready to be disrupted and confronted? Are we ready to disrupt and confront the way things are? I hope so. Are we ready to turn things right side up? Well, I want to give you good news. The good news is that it's not impossible to do. As a matter of fact, it's very possible to do. And you are the perfect people with whom it can start. Moses put it this way, Deuteronomy chapter 30. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear and do it. Neither is beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you may do it. So what is this word? that you and I can do? What is this word that is very near us, in our mouths and in our hearts? The word is the yes of faith to what God wants to do and is doing right now. That is why Paul quotes this passage in Romans 10. He called for the same word, the same yes of faith, this time the yes of faith to what God was doing in Christ. The word that I'm looking for from myself from you, the word that is rising in your heart is yes! In the midst of movements that don't even want to look at the question. Are you ready to say yes to what God wants to do? Or are you satisfied with going through the motions? Holding on instead of growing like a weed. Maintaining a dead movement. Clanging gongs and tinkling cymbals. Jesus is impatient to see fire, 
Am I? Are you? I think you'll agree that the time has come and now is for all of us. And everyone we know to say yes to what God wants to do. I think that most of us would be thrilled to have a dramatic impact on the people we know, the people we work with, the people we love. All of us would be. The good news is that God has already given us all that we need to make a big difference in the world. Already. In a few minutes, we will look together, not only at how that fire can break out, but what is the fireplace? Where does the fire burn? We're going to talk about that today. This is no time to feel inadequate. Our sufficiency is of Christ. When it comes to information, when it comes to knowledge, when it comes to historical perspective, the early church can't compare with us. Do you realize we know a thousand times more than the people in the early church know? When it comes to information, we're way ahead of them. We're not behind. We're way ahead when it comes to human resources. With Dr. Stokes here to assist you, whom I consider to be the premier evangelical in the world for understanding this interfacing of the Christian and Jewish world. With him here, you're more than conquerors. When it comes to spiritual resources, these also are available to us the same way they were available to the first century believers. Why? Because Jesus promised us. He said, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? That's a, that's a blank check that did not expire in the first century. And didn't Jesus say to us that he would send us another comforter to be with us forever? Did he lie? God forbid. Whoever you are, remember this. It is still true. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. That's how Martin Luther said it. And he was right. That's that great. The spirit and the gifts are yours. Even though you're Southern Baptists. Somehow the Holy Spirit did not get the memo. Whoever you are, whoever I am, the best way to experience the magnetic dynamics, dynamics of life in the Word and life in the Spirit is through implementing some version of the model through which the early church turned the world upside down. In other words, to some extent, in order to get what they got, we've got to do what they did. Does that make sense? That's what I'm suggesting. And I, with some adaptations, it's 2,000 years later. But there's a direct connection. And I'm going to prove it to you. I think you already know from the Bible and from the title of my sermon where I'm heading. I am saying that the key to spiritual renewal is the household. I was talking to your pastor a couple of weeks ago, and I'd reached a realization which I know lives in his heart, and that is that the, the integer, the fundamental integer of spiritual identity and growth is not the individual, and it's not the congregation. It's the household, and as Cheryl reminded us, especially the family. The things that Cheryl has been through, which we all know at least in part, as she testified so beautifully this morning, and as our sister testified over here, the things that we've gone through, 
what equipped us spiritually to handle these things. It's what happens in the family, in the home. Let's take Corinth, for example. I want you to turn with me, if you will, to Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 10. Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 10. Okay, here we go. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a, and he found a Jew named Aquila, the, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Shabbat and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, uh, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will be able to attack you or harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Paul was a man like us. He was a man with a mission, just as you here are women with a mission and men with a mission. He came to Corinth with one thing in mind. He wanted to unleash the kingdom of God among Gentiles in the power of the Spirit and in the name of Jesus the Messiah inviting those who had formerly been outsiders to become insiders to the people of God. He begins by looking for someone with whom he has an affinity, and he finds Priscilla and Aquila, who will turn out to be the most dynamic missional couple in the entire New Testament. He has a strong affinity with them. They are believers, as he is. They're exiles from Rome under Claudius. They are Jews, as he is. At least we know Aquila was, and we assume Priscilla was. So is Paul. They make tents for a living, that's what he does. So he has a lot in common with them. And here is what we must not miss. He uses their home as his base of operations. There was little else he could do. There were no motels and there were no hotels, and he didn't have a lot of money. However, when Silas and Timothy come down from Macedonia, apparently they brought some money, and so Paul was able to devote himself full-time to proclaiming the gospel there in Corinth. We don't know where he and Silas and Timothy stayed during that period, but we can assume they're still staying in the same house with Priscilla and Aquila. But things go bad at that synagogue where he's proclaiming the gospel. And Paul says that from now on he's going to go to the Gentiles. And we read that he left there and he went to the house of a man named Titius, Justice, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. Again, a house 
is his base of operations. It's not just a place where he sleeps. It's action central. He doesn't have money to rent a house or buy one. Again, with Priscilla and Aquila, then with Titius Justice, his base of operations, action central, is a home. From work at that base of operations, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believes, as the scripture says, as does his entire household. I'm a fanatic about discipling households. That's what my life is about at this time, especially Jewish and intermarried households. But there's a lot for you to learn and a lot for us to do together because our missions, our passions are compatible, as is my heart with your pastor. And many Corinthians heard and believed. It is in and through the home that the Spirit of God is moving. The home is the base of operations. Clearly, it cannot be anywhere else. And we read in verse 9 and 10 that the, God comes to Paul in a vision. You never think of Paul being afraid, you know. You never think of him being afraid, but he's afraid. It's very rocky there in Corinth. In Corinth. That's why the, the Lord comes to him in a vision and says this, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I'm with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Does God have many Jews in Orange County that are meant, destined to be his people? Yes. Are there many Gentiles in Orange County that are destined to become his people? Yes. The fact that you don't know who they are doesn't mean God does not know. And there was really nowhere else to go but the home. Yes, things were cooking in Corinth, but also things were hot. And as we read the New Testament, we find that wherever Paul goes, whatever city he goes to, whatever one of the three, his three missionary journeys he's on, we find the same problem for which he implements something of the same solution. This is his problem. How to disciple a diverse collection of average Joe believers and their families in a wide variety of paganized and secularized contexts, such that they will become conformed to the life patterns extolled by the apostles, with their lives and thinking rooted in the scriptures, expressive of the life of the Spirit in their midst, as a sign of the kingdom to those around them, in anticipation of their accountability to the returning Son of Man, who will judge the quick and the dead, and meanwhile, discipling others into the life into which they themselves were being discipled. Discipling others into the life in which they themselves were being discipled. And by the way, discipling is something that never ends. Because Jesus said, it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher. Until we're like Jesus Christ, we're still being discipled. At least we should be. Don't we have the same problem that Paul did? Isn't our problem how to, how to disciple a diverse collection of average Joes and their families in our paganized and secularized culture, such that they become conformed to the life patterns extolled by the apostles, with our lives and their lives and our thinking and their thinking rooted in the scriptures, expressive of the life of the Spirit, a sign of the presence of the kingdom to those around us, 
anticipating our accountability to the Son of Man when he returns. Meanwhile, that we are discipling them in order that they might disciple others who all in turn will disciple others until Yeshua comes. Isn't that our challenge? I submit that it is. Now, no less than Paul, we have to perform these tasks in the midst of contravening forces. We're not in a vacuum any more than Paul was. Paul was in a situation in Corinth where God had to give him a vision to, to strengthen his resolve. We also have resistance. First of all, there's the tug of society which pulls us away from the commitments to which God has called us. We have tugs of our, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that pull us away from God's commitments and pull us towards judgment. Secondly, there's the tug of unquestioned church norms in the wider context, which draw us away from effectiveness and proper commitments towards competitive institution building. Many churches, and this is not meant to slander anybody, but it's a fact, they exist in order to build a building, to have a place to meet, and to be bigger than the church down the block. That's why they exist. The church is really about institution building. And if the church can grow like a weed through transfer growth, everybody's happy, even though maybe if they're lucky, 4% of the new members of that church are are, are new believers. Still, everybody's happy because we're paying the bills, we're keeping the door open, and everybody knows our name. Well, the best way to experience the magnetic dynamics of life in the Word and life in the Spirit is through implementing some version of the model through which the early church turned the world upside down. So let's look at that holy means for a minute, for a few minutes. You are the disciple center. But my friends... You are discipled to disciple others. You are not discipled to be discipled. If you look at the Great Commission, Jesus sends the apostles who are disciples, a certain grade of disciple. He sends them out to do what? To make disciples of all nations. He disciples disciples so they will go out and disciple others. That's why we exist Discipling, remember, is an ongoing process. It's never finished in this life. Yeshua said, as I said earlier, it's enough for a disciple to be like his teacher, and that only, that's the only thing that's enough. And again, as the Great Commission says, we are discipled to go and make disciples, who in turn will go and make disciples. That's the way it works. That's the only way it works. And that is the way it will work if we will say the yes of faith. And I'm going to show you how. Not just this week, but two weeks from now and the week after. I'm going to, with the help of God, I want to do things in the Jewish community and the intermarried Jewish community that uh, are extremely parallel to what I know your pastor wants you to do and what you can do and what you should do, what you were discipled to do. The worst thing that could happen to the disciple center And a real danger you face is the danger of being ingrown. That's the worst danger. 
I already see this happening because you're a specific kind of community. You're a highly intentional community, and that's good because your pastor has raised you up to be a group that has a certain kind of ideological DNA that is precious. And the ideological DNA of most of the Messianic Jewish movement is so polluted and so strange that they can no longer do what God has called them to do or even recognize the need. But your pastor has wisely raised you up as an invitation-only community in order to develop a certain cohesiveness of ideological DNA, which is precious. You're the only church I know of in America, just like you. But you have closed meetings. And unless you people in this room bring others, nobody's coming and nobody's being touched. Unless you touch others, nobody is being touched. Unless you disciple others, no one is being discipled. Not gonna, it's not like the average church where they say, well, I've got to bring you to my church. and My pastor will disciple you. It doesn't work that way. That's not the way it's supposed to work. Paul the Apostle said that our job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. It's to equip the disciples for the work of discipling. <laughs> you know? It's, it's so obvious. It, I'm, I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that so many of us have lost sight of that. I mean, it's not like, I'm not, this is not rocket science, and it's not something new, it's not something quirky, it's not a strange interpretation of Scripture. It's 101. The kingdom of God requires that we go out in order to grow out. And both the Messianic Jewish movement and the church in America are failing. Let's look at what a church is supposed to be. It's clear from Scripture that the early church met in private homes often of its more affluent members. For example, Philemon, who had a slave uh, uh, named Onesimus, also hosted a church in his home. We read that in Scripture. Lydia, in Acts 16, I love the story of Lydia. She's with a group of women. I'm teaching a women's Bible study, and some people would be embarrassed to teach a women's Bible study, but Paul the Apostle taught a women's Bible study in Acts chapter 16, so I'm in good terms, in good company. She's down there by the river with a bunch of other women. They have a meeting on Shabbat. Paul is looking for someone for him to have an effect. And the Lord opens her heart and she believes. And then she immediately says, why don't you come and stay in my house? And he does. Then the whole mishmash with the, the, the slave girl with the python spirit and Paul getting thrown into prison with Silas and Tim Silas and Timothy, I guess, and then the Philippian jailer, there's an earthquake, the Philippian jailer, and his whole household believes. Then, before Paul leaves Philippi, he goes to Lydia's house to talk to the brothers and sisters there. Already, Lydia's house is action central in Philippi. Just like that. Boom! That's the way it works. I love your place. It's a great place. And I see it having a tremendous, a tremendous purpose, a tremendous usefulness. But Action Central is your house, your dining room table, not here. This is a place to train you to be out there who you should be. That's what it is. A church met in the home of Aquila and Priscilla, who engaged in the lucrative tent-making trade. Gaius, a man with... Uh, with means to support missionaries, according to Third John, 
Gaius had a home big enough in Rome that the whole church in Rome met in his house. But these houses, by the way, they've done, they've done archaeology. And the, 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 the larger churches, the largest meetings were probably about 45 people. You know, they were not huge churches. The church in Rome was not a huge church. Probably about 45 people. Less well known is the fact that the early church continued this practice of house churches for hundreds of years, even after the New Testament was completed until about the time of Constantine. For hundreds of years, churches met in homes. That's the way it was done. So let's look at three characteristics of the kind of household that God uses and how he uses it. Okay? Take a breath. I've been, I've been hammering away at you here. I'm pretty emphatic when you're six feet five and you're emphatic, you scare people to death. I've learned that. <laughs> so first of all, we need to look at the family nature of the gathering. That's the first characteristic. These communities were extended families. Paul expected the participants to become mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters to each other. He expected real involvement in each other's lives based on a far-reaching commitment to one another. Robert Banks is a man, a world-class expert on the house church, and I studied with him at Fuller in 1990 or 91. I did an independent study with him. He says that Christians ought to see themselves as members of a divine family. The meeting of Christians with their God is analogous to the encounter between adult children and their father, where they are able to relate to him not only in the most intimate, but also increasingly in the most mature fashion. In view of this, end quote, in view of this common relationship to one father in and through the son, we are to see each other primarily as members of one family. And the bond is the most intimate one. Indeed, it's the controlling one in the core uh, relationships of our lives. Thus, Paul says in Galatians 6, do good unto all people, especially to those who are of the household of faith. That's, that's, that's your special family. It's interesting. I did not plan this. I did not plan my life, really. I left New York in 1973. That's, what, 40, I don't know how many years ago now. Let's say, 43 years ago. When I left New York, I was a member of a house church. I didn't plan it that way but it was a member of a house church called the Household of Faith. It still exists. It's been a tremendous force for good in the Bronx, New York. So God was preparing me for this kind of stuff way back before I had a clue. Paul uses a wide variety of family terms. You've heard them here from your pastor. Oikonomos, a household, a household steward, is used frequently. Adelphoi, brethren. In paragraph after paragraph in his letters, Banks says... Uh, 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 brethren, Adelphoi, is far and away Paul's favorite way of referring to the members of the communities in which he is writing. And Banks makes this statement, quote, The metaphor of the family was a vital one to Paul. Paralleling the household context of community gatherings, we have the use of household language to describe the relationships between members. The correlation of the two may be accidental in Paul. Christians may not have anywhere else to have had anywhere else to meet especially since the synagogues soon became closed to them, and rooms attached to local temples would have possessed unsavory connotations. But just possibly the practical necessity for their use blended with a further theologically-based consideration 
For given the family character of the Christian community, the homes of its members provided the most conducive atmosphere in which they could give expression to the bond which they had in common. In other words, we all say that we are family. We're the family of God. Well, where should a family meet if not in a house, in a household? So, first is the family nature of the gathering. Secondly is the body nature of the gathering. One of Paul's favorite ways of communicating the unity and diversity of the family of God is a metaphor of a body. 1 Corinthians 12, of course, is big on this, and he says this, that in the local community of Corinth, which is described as the body of... In the local community, Corinth is described as the body of Messiah. Indeed, the community of Corinth is not said to be part of the wider body of Christ, nor is it a body of Messiah alongside others. It is the body of Messiah in that place. This suggests that wherever Christians are in relationship, there is the body of Messiah in its entirety. For Messiah is truly and wholly present there through his spirit. Each member of the community is granted a ministry to other members. This militates against the tendency to standardize roles or to write off certain people as, quote, ungifted. You're all gifted. And that's important. I remember years ago, there was a church in St. Louis called Grace and Peace Fellowship. I met them through this house church I mentioned. This goes back now to about 1963, which is before I was born. Uh, uh, in 1963, the, this church was, uh, it was affiliated with Covenant Seminary, but it was, an ex- it was a very experimental church. The, uh, the pastor was a fellow named Egon Middleman, whose brother Udo Middleman worked with Francis Schaeffer. And this is a very sophisticated uh, countercultural church. There was an elder there named Smith, uh, Bob Smith, and his wife Betty. Betty felt inferior because she felt she didn't have any spiritual gifts. Her husband was a teaching elder, and there are other people there like Aegon Middleman and others who just were so gifted, and she felt she didn't have any gifts. But Betty was the kind of person that if a busload of people were coming into town, they got word on a Saturday afternoon that 45 people from Oshkosh, Wisconsin, are coming through St. Louis and want to stop off and visit, Betty would say, no problem. She'd prepare the meal and host everybody without working up a sweat and just smile. She had a tremendous gift of hospitality. Tremendous. Crucial to the well-being of that community. But she didn't realize she had a gift because she had a stereotypical view of gifts. Well, gifted people are like, are like uh, Stuart Dowerman and are like Bruce Stokes. You know, they teach, and they're intellectuals, and they do this. No, 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 you're all gifted. You're all gifted. And if, you, if you're sitting there thinking, well, man, for me to have a household that represents Yeshua, the disciples' people, you don't know my household. None of us can teach. Well, you've got to realize what you're saying. You're saying that God is inadequate, that he cannot gift your household to get the job done. That he cannot do in this century what he did in the first century. That's what you're saying. Uh, I had a fleeting thought about that which just fled. It may come back. <laughs> and it's precisely those gifts which are least attractive and are least apparent which are likely to be most crucial 
to the well-being of the community. As in the case of Betty, you know, Betty took herself for granted. Maybe other people took it for granted. But without Betty's uh, hospitality gift, uh, they would have been in a lot of trouble. Also, as you know, what happens to one member of the body afflicts uh, and affects everybody else. If one person rejoices, everybody rejoices. If one person grieves, everybody grieves. It seems that Paul could not have chosen a more apt and compelling metaphor than the body in order to highlight how interactive interrelationship is irreplaceable as a growth factor in the life of the Christian community. We are one body. We need each other in all of our uniqueness in order that together we might be under God what he has called us to be. So, first, there's the family nature of it. Secondly, there's the body nature of it. And finally, there's the full-orbed nature of the gathering. Full-orbed. Rob, and his, uh, Rob Banks and his uh, dearly departed wife, Julia, remind us that there was to be an earthy, practical character to church life, contrary to the excessively religious and otherworldly spirituality of our day. God, who is intimately involved in our lives, expects us likewise to concern ourselves with each other's actual needs. Thus, we may with relief recognize there is no dichotomy between giving the Lord the glory due his name and ministering to our brothers and sisters. We do both together. And there is no dichotomy between the sacred and the secular. In your church, if, somebody's, if somebody needs new tires for their car, that's a spiritual need. You know, if they need, if they need help in, in knowing how to talk to the teacher of their daughter who is abusing their child, that is church business. Everything in our lives is God's business, and everything in our lives is family business. So, I'll have more to say about this later on. Let me say just that I dream of having here in Orange County a network of homes, Jewish homes and intermarried homes. Do you know what percentage of Jewish marriages now are intermarriages? 71%. 71% of Jewish marriages are intermarriages now amongst non-Orthodox Jews. And I was talking to an associate of mine who I'm going to be working with, who's a woman named Linda Levy, and she is a, a very, very gifted attractive woman who uh, grew up a Southern Baptist, loves the church, has no, no sense of regret about growing up a Southern Baptist. She loves the church, but she also loves a Jewish man who was her husband. And I told her, I said, Linda, do you know who the, uh, the, the bullseye of our target audience is? Do you know who I'm especially going to be gearing my household ambitions to? I'll tell you, the Gentile wives of Jewish men. That's very interesting. The majority of those intermarriages, vast majority, are Gentile girls, Gentile women married to Jewish men. And those Gentile women, some of them are Christians of a certain sort, whether nominal or, or, or lukewarm or even warm, as in the case of Linda. And they want help to have spiritual integration of their family. They want their husband to come alive spiritually. They want to raise up, as Linda does, a Jewish home that honors Yeshua the Messiah, as I call him, the more Jewish Jesus. <laughs> That's what I teach about. I teach about the more Jewish Jesus. More Jewish than most people think of. More Jewish than even you've learned to think of him. 
And um, I told Linda, our target audience is people just like you, those Christian women, because if those Christian women in those households find out about a work that is, that is designed to introduce into that family constellation the more Jewish Jesus, so that the Jewish partner, and you guys will get this in your church better than anybody else, the Jewish partner can move towards Jesus without moving away from his Jewish loyalty. Because we have a more Jewish Jesus. We have a Jesus who affirms Jewish community structures, who affirms uh, Jewish values and affirms Jewish customs. I can prove it from Scripture. That's not the kind of Jesus we hear about. We hear about the opposition Jesus. It's Jesus instead of the, instead of the rabbis, the New Testament instead of the Old Testament, us instead of them, the church instead of Israel. That's what Jews are used to hearing. That's not what they, want, they don't want a part of. But that's not who Jesus really is. He's not only the Lord of the church, he's, the, he's not only the Savior of the world, he is still the son of David. And Paul says to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8, he says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the son of David. This is the gospel that I preach. People have forgotten that son of David part. He's not talking about genetics. He's talking about Jesus' office. Jesus is the ultimate hero of the Jewish people. Still is. And when you introduce this more Jewish Jesus into these families, then the Jewish partner can warm up to Jesus without feeling he's betraying his Jewishness, and the Christian partner can warm up to Judaism without feeling she's betraying her Christianity. And, you know, Pastor Stokes back there is amening all of this because he and I are like this. We're like this on these matters. This is the perfect place for it to happen. If it doesn't happen here for me, I'm going to do it somewhere else. I'll do it out of my car. But this is what i got to do. What, my goal in the Jewish community is to have these points of light. Points of light, these homes, these households. Discipling households in what I call the three-stranded cord. Discipling them in going deeper into Jewish life, deeper into Yeshua faith, and deeper into relationship with God. Jewish life, the Father. Yeshua faith, the Son. Relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. That's, that's what I do. And also you, your homes. Uh, and your homes, I don't mean just simply the people who live in your house, your households, but also people who would be attached to your houses, an expanded household, a chavurah in Jewish terms. And I'll talk to you about that either next time or the time after. Those households are also meant to be points of light. Periodically, all those points of light come together for a meeting, which, is, which would be like a supernova. All those points of light, it burns brightly, but the real uh, growing edge of the kingdom of God in Orange County is the dining room table and the household. So, I want to finish by telling you a story about a couple of very typical Southern Baptists. Kai and Grace Ying. Kai Ying, uh, Ying Kai, actually, Ying Kai and his wife Grace. He was born in Taiwan. He lived in the United States for a while. His father was a pastor. His father was a very successful pastor in Taiwan who would uh, win about 40 or 60 people to the faith every year and start a new church. Pretty good. 
And his son, his son Ying, would also uh, uh, became a missionary in Taiwan, and he did the same thing, planting a new church every year. And then some people suggested, they said, and then he was in Hong Kong. Well, someone came to him finally and said, look, in Hong Kong we have 143 Southern Baptist churches in Hong Kong. We don't need any more Southern Baptist churches in Hong Kong. You ought to go to the mainland, go to mainland China. He didn't want to go to mainland China. First of all, the language was different. He had to learn a different form of Chinese, entirely different. Secondly, he felt that with communism in China, there was all kinds of interference. But God had his way with him, and he and his wife moved to China. And God uh, gave him a different approach to reaching the millions and millions and millions of people in China. Let me read to you. May I read to you a bit? Okay. Ying and Grace began by training one class of 30 believers. Now, his approach is called T for T, training for trainers. Because his idea is that essentially, and I agree with him, your pastor and I are not here to simply increase your knowledge. It's to train you for action. Discipleship is being a discipled to do, not simply to know. There are people who know too much and do too little. You are discipled to do. And that's what, uh, what uh, Ying and his wife did. They taught the trainees uh, that each of them had a unique story to tell of how they met Jesus. So they trained them to tell their story and helped them to identify each, each of these 30 people. He, he said, I want you to think of five people that you know. And I want you to pray for them. And then this week I want you to go out and tell them your story. The next week, 17 of the 30 trainees reported sharing their story. One farmer had shared with 11 people. The following week, Ying raised the level of accountability and allowed only those who were sharing their story to continue with the training. Two months later, the trainees had started 20 small groups. After six months, there were 327 small groups and 4,000 newly baptized believers. In, uh, that's in uh, three months. Within 12 months, there were 908 house churches with more than 12,000 new Christians. One old farmer who had never before planted a church started 12 house churches in two months and 110 in the first year. He began every day reading his Bible from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Then he worked the fields until 5 p.m., at which point he went home to dinner and family time. At 7 p.m. he went back out again, and he worked God's fields until midnight. So every day from 7 to midnight he would go and visit with people. Last page. In another town, a 67-year-old woman became a Christian, and in one year she led more than 60 families to become believers. Now these are not well-educated people. They did have our advantages. In another example, Ying lost touch with a Christian factory worker he had trained, and after six months, he learned that the worker had been transferred to another large factory with 10,000 workers. During those six months, the worker had started 70 small groups and seen 10 generations of reproduction. In other words, I told these people, they told those 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 people, ten, 10 generations down. After, uh, by the year 2003... 
Ying and Grace were training 300 to 400 believers every month, discipling them. In the most recent survey of Kai's ministry, more than 1.7 million people have come to faith and been baptized. Every month, trained workers start 2,000 house churches and small groups in villages, urban high-rise apartments, and factories. Over 140,000 churches have been started in what is currently the world's fastest-growing church planting movement. So, these are Southern Baptists. Their approach is very simple, and that is they disciple people to disciple others. And I've worked out a curriculum where I will do that, where it's, it's part of the genius of it is that he will only teach you where you can go, go teach somebody else. In other words, I have a friend in Israel who follows this approach, and he's a genius. Someday I'd like you to meet him. His name is Sean Steckbeck. And he has started 55 uh, of these groups in, in southern Israel. And he says, uh, I will never show the Jesus film to people. Why? Because they don't have access to the Jesus film. So I won't use an approach with them that they can't use with somebody else. That's part of the genius. In other words, the idea is replication from the, from, from the get-go. Replication, replication, replication. Can we do this? Yes. Should we do it? I think so. Will we do it? Only we can say. So, there's going to be some questions and answers. Let me just bring up one and to prime the pump, and then I'll, I'll let, you, uh, let you go on. I brought the question up before. One question you might ask, look, in our house we're so ho-hum. We lack the gifts to make such an enterprise work. Let somebody